Well, it is a pleasure, but I should say a pleasure, but not a surprise to see everyone here this morning. As David Mead from last week retracted his statements regarding the end of the world for yesterday, the 23rd, he said instead, quote, the world is not ending, but the world as we know it is ending. Then asked, where is all of this coming from? He says, well, quote, Jesus lived for 33 years. Right? So you're tracking, okay, how are we determining the end of the world? We missed yesterday. It canceled out. How are we supposed to determine it? Well, he says, quote, Jesus lived for 33 years. The name Elohim, which is the name of God for the Jews, was mentioned 33 times. It is a very biblically significant and numerologically significant number. I'm talking astronomy, I'm talking the Bible, and I'm merging the two. Good idea. So, as you see back to the land of the living, the rest of us, as we recognize how ridiculous that is, there is yet a life to be lived daily through faith without seeking some sort of outward external sign for some sort of numerical code unleashing the Bible and the end of the world. The rest of us persevere daily by word and sacrament. So this morning on this Lord's Day, we have yet another opportunity to advance and grow and be nourished in our faith this Lord's Day. As you see the passage that was read for you so far, we're going to tackle verses, 17, uh, verses 15 through 17. And first foot out the door, we need to recognize that this passage comes into play in light of the Pharisee and the tax collector. So again, what's happening here, you see in verse 15, it begins, now they were bringing even infants to him. So, so the connection, the thought connection from 15 and 14 is alive and well, and it's due to one particular theme that unites the entire passage, and that is the theme of humility. So notice how it begins, really, if we were to consider the entire text, and we'll get to the infants next, but notice the part of the infants in light of the whole. Verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. And again, we covered that last week. But here is a thrust of the conclusion that also bridges into the infants this morning. And that is, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. You see... It's the common thread between both episodes, linking them into one episode with different particulars of which we'll look at this morning, but one central theme, and that is the idea of humility. Luke sees here, if you, if you come out of 14, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants. You see, for Luke... The infant being brought here is the ultimate picture of humility. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants. Do you see the ultimate picture of humility? These are they, the little ones, the infants, who cannot do anything to stand alone as the Pharisee did. I thank you, God, that you've really made me a better version of me and better than a version of everyone else here, too. 
I, I give you lip service because it, you started the ball rolling, but remember, I've really improved upon it. You can't do that. It, that, that. That arrogance will be humbled. But the man who beat upon his chest and didn't even look up, the man who took the posture of humility, admitting, I have nothing that I can bring, this man will be exalted. You want to see even a greater picture, an ultimate picture of humility? Now, they were bringing even infants to him. These are they who can claim nothing of their own merits. They can plead nothing of their own case, whereby they ought to lay claim to the kingdom. They cannot say, you know how I've done so far in these very few brief months that I've been alive. You ought to honor the case of how I feed upon my own mother. They have nothing to plead. Now, these are they to whom the kingdom belongs. There are a couple of different pieces going on in this text. Keep in mind the idea of humility. The infant as the absolute epitome, the, the absolute example of humility. There are two pieces going on in the text this morning that I want us to work through. There are, number one, two pieces in this passage we really need to notice. Number one, there is an affirmation of the presence of infants in the kingdom of God. There is an affirmation. And this, this is not to be confused with the second part. This is a standalone piece in this passage. There is an affirmation in this passage of the presence of infants in the kingdom of God. That will be straight obvious as we read the passage. But we'll have to dig into that piece a little bit to see just exactly where is this coming from, how is it working, what does it mean. But first piece of this passage and the idea of humility, the absolute example of humility is the infant. It can claim nothing of its own, no argument, nothing in its hands does it bring. Yet to it, Jesus expressly says, belongs the kingdom. The affirmation of the infants or the presence of the infants in the kingdom of God. And the second part of the passage that we'll look at is really kind of zeroing in in verse 17. There's an analogy of how adults are to belong to the kingdom as well. There is an analogy here in the passage of how adults are to relate or belong to the kingdom as well. You see that in verse 17. I'll just kind of give that little piece away, but we will get there in a few moments where he says, truly I say to you. So you have this one scene, and I, and I want you to see these two things as, as I'm going to argue for them this morning. The, these two things are separate. They're related when he turns to the crowd and says, so I say to you. So the episode of the infants being brought to Jesus is part one. This we need to deal with on its own merits. What's going on in the infants being brought to Jesus and what's going on in his saying that they belong to the kingdom? What's the expectation on the part of the parents who are bringing the babies to Jesus in the first place? What's going on in part one? And then not to confuse it with part two. Well, no, this is just an idea of infants, and it's really about the adults, of how they need to be more humble and receive the kingdom. No, 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 no. That's not what's going on. We have part one. There's an affirmation that infants belong to the kingdom of God. Then there's this second 
heart analogy. That then after the infants come, and there's this scene in Jesus and the infants, he then turns to you, the adults, those in the crowd, and says, furthermore, I say to you. So that's part two. Not to wash away part one. And that is, part two will be that analogy of, of this episode with the infants coming to Jesus and what that means for each adult here as they consider themselves either united to the kingdom or not. What is that part for an adult considering their union to the kingdom or not? It's humility. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. You'll find yourself, based on your own merits, outside the kingdom. That's the analogy that he's drawing for the adult. So how do we begin to tackle this text? Again, just to briefly rehearse, I hope you're following me to this point. It's really important we get this this morning. There is an affirmation in this text, I trust that you will see with me, of the presence of infants in the kingdom of God. How do we see this? Well, we'll have to work through a series of questions together as I put it together, hopefully to be able to see all that is transpiring in verses 15 and 16. The first question that we have to ask, I think, let's, let's jump into the text. I'll read 15 and 16, come back with a guiding question to get started on seeing Jesus is affirming the presence of infants in the kingdom of God. Notice how. Remember the picture of humility. So just for that, I'm going to start in verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, they were bringing even infants, brephos, infants, not, not children, toddlers, infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. Rebuked him. Now, the first question that we need to ask about what's going on in the picture regarding the affirmation of the, of the children or the infants in the presence of the kingdom is this. Why would the parents be bringing the infants to Jesus in the first place? Have you ever stopped to think about that in reading this passage, perhaps in a Bible read-through, or studying this passage on your own once before? Have you ever asked this question, just the obvious thought, not brushing over it, but stopped to ask? Now, they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. Why? Why are they bringing infants to him, and why is Luke taking time to note it? Why are they bringing them? The textual answer is obvious. In verse 15, you see it. It says, in order that he might touch them. Why are the parents? So so here's Jesus. He is speaking. He is preaching. There's a bunch of crowds around. And then they, these people, out of this crowd, are bringing their infants to him. And we say, well, why are they doing that? Well, the text says, in order that he might touch them. That begs yet another question, right? What are they hoping for in the touching? Why? We don't have any data in the passage that indicates that the infants are infirmed, right? That there's some sort of disease going on or there's um, any kind of illness that is present. 
we don't have any of that making mention to us. And Luke has been keen on the details all the way throughout his gospel. That if there were, these infants had X, Y, and Z, they're bringing them that they might receive particular healing for this particular ailment. We have none of that data available to us. All we know is there are sincere people here bringing their infants to Jesus. Why? Well, that he might touch them. What, what does that touching indicate? What is the touching for? Turn with me to the parallel account in Mark, if you would. We have to see it as it's the same text, only from Mark's, Mark's vantage point. So he adds a little bit more. Go to Mark chapter 10, if you would. Mark chapter 10. So we can see what exactly is the expectation on the mind of the parents at this point in the text. They're bringing their infants the ultimate example of humility. But what are their expectations? Well, they want Jesus to touch them. What are they thinking is going to transpire in that event? Verse 13 of chapter 10. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. And we'll get to that at the end where, uh, where we see their response. But it's similar. The, the same episode Mark, re, Mark records. The disciples rebuked them. Don't bring the kids over here. Now look at verse 14. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. Right? How dare you? It's not that he just was, was indifferent. He was indignant. Oh, no, 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 hey, 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 keep the kids out, keep the kids out, keep the crying babies away. We're busy doing ministry. He was indignant. How dare you? To the disciples. Then look at the command. Let the children come to me. Furthermore, he adds, do not hinder them, right? That, well, that's obvious. If, if you, you command us to let them come, we're not supposed to hinder them. He, it gets back to the point of his emotion. He was indignant. Let them come. Don't get in their way. Then notice, we get now a bit more to the same picture in, in Luke, where it says, for to such, for to such as these belongs the kingdom of God. That's a staggering statement. Verse 15, truly I say to you, to all of you watching, to all of you seeing these babies, to all of you who are watching this episode, whoever out of all of you people, rational adults, who do not receive the kingdom analogous to this baby, right like this child, you will not enter it. And here's verse 16, the key of what we're seeking and the question of what are they hoping for in the blessing? Or, sorry, I just gave my answer away. I was building up to it for like the last five minutes. What were they hoping for? And the touching is what I meant to say. But thank you. <laughs> this is what they came seeking. Verse 16. And he took them, that is, the infants, in his arms. And he blessed them laying his hands upon them. Going back to our text then, as now each of us in the room very clearly knows, 
these parents were seeking Jesus' blessing by the laying out of hands upon their infants. They wanted Jesus to bless their little ones. Not that there was an ailment which their children need to be relieved from, but they were coming seeking his hand of blessing. But this prompts yet another question, doesn't it? What is the blessing that they sought and Jesus lovingly bestowed? The disciples, they don't seem to know. Hey, get them out of here, get them out of here, back them up. They're too loud, they're too noisy, they're crying all the time. How dare you? Get out of the way. Let them come. Don't you dare get in their way. And he took them in their arms and he blessed them. That's what the parents were seeking. But what is the blessing he bestowed? He blessed them. With what? If I could give you an angle from the parents, and then I hope to back it up with the expectation within the passage by moving from this text yet again, it is simply this. The parents are expressing a forward-looking desire that their child would grow up to follow Jesus. That's the blessing they're seeking. That's what they're coming to Jesus with their fully, as otherwise we know, healthy infants. And it's not one. They were bringing their infants they came expressing a forward-looking desire that that child or their children would grow up into following Jesus. This prompts yet another question that I must ask, right? So, so the, their desire is, I want the, my baby to follow, to grow up, to follow Jesus. I want my baby to be a disciple. I want my baby to grow, to follow Christ. And Jesus said, don't prevent them. Let them through. Give me the infants. But maybe we're a few steps removed from that. Like in our current context, in this modern context, maybe these are not our shared impulses. Maybe we don't have a little one and immediately have this impulse that we want the Lord to bless this little one. I'm going to challenge that in a few moments. I think we do. But yet it maybe is a good question to explore just for a moment, just to, just to kind of connect our modern sense with this biblical sense of impulse. In other words, where did the parents who are bringing their infants to Jesus, where did the impulse come from? Did they just think, Jesus is a great guy. And he's well-loved and popular and preaches. It seems stunning. I, I want him to put his hand on my child. Maybe there'll be some sort of spiritual sauce that will be implied. And then, and then the child will just grow up to be a great orator or a great leader or a, a, a great healer. Or a, what, What's the impulse? What, what it, where are the parents coming from with their mind, with their heart, to say, with our baby, we see Jesus. We want to bring it to Jesus that he might bless him, bless her. Where's that impulse coming from? Don't just gloss over the text lightly. We must ask, why are the parents doing this? 
the answer is the great covenant promises that God gave to Abraham. The parents aren't making this up. They're not impossibly thinking it's a good idea or thinking that he's an exciting figure. They are bringing their infants to Jesus because of the great covenant promises that God gave to Abraham regarding their infants. So for that, I hope you see the scene. Here's a Jewish family. Here is a baby. They're coming to Jesus to give the baby to Jesus that he might bless the baby. We're asking this question because maybe we don't have this immediate impulse. We're asking the question, where did that impulse come from? Did they just think, that's a good idea. I want to bring him over. Or did they think, I should be bringing him over because I recognize something in him that has been promised me about me and my family. That's the question we're asking. You have to ask it. Why are they doing this? From where does the impulse come? And I'm suggesting to you, it's coming from the great covenant promises God has given to Abraham, of which these families are familiar. If they are familiar, it would naturally lead, naturally lead to bringing their infant to Jesus that he might bless it. Go with me to Genesis 17 to please see this with me just for a few moments. Genesis 17. Genesis 17 to see indeed that the parent's impulse is not unbiblical and the parent's impulse is not irrational or caught up in some sort of hysteria about spiritual secret sauce that Jesus would apply but indeed that it's covenantal blessing that they seek and it's covenantal blessing that they've been promised. It is absolutely natural and biblical and right that the parents are bringing their infants to Jesus. Notice verse, um, if you're there in Genesis 17, I'm just going to go ahead and read through the passage. I'll try not to stop because I'm going to end up going two hours long this morning. So I have to keep moving, but please, please chart this course with me. As you see, we're we're seeing a family in Luke live out Genesis 17. Verse 1 of chapter 17, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. The great covenantal text of the Abrahamic promise, of which the church this morning is its fruits. Verse 5. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Now, begin to look at where this family from Luke is living as they bring their baby to Jesus. Verse 6, I will make you exceedingly uh, fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you. This is a particular piece. 
please note well in the text of Scripture. The covenant is not only unto Abraham and God. Do you see that in verse 7? I will establish my covenant, that is, my kingdom, my church, my covenant. I will establish between me and you, Abraham, and between me and your offspring after you. So you see the covenant God is making with Abraham to build a kingdom. He is making with Abraham, that's you, Abraham, between you and me, and between me and your offspring. I'm going to be in covenant with both you and, not you and maybe some others, you and, definitively so, your offspring. Now, they were bringing even infants to him that he might bless them. Where does it come from? Verse 7, and throughout their generations, and, and how long will this covenantal expectation exist? For how long will you be a God to me, Abraham, and to my offspring, my little ones, my children? For how long will this covenantal arrangement last? Forever. What? Yes. Forever. It doesn't end. It's an everlasting covenant. Well, what is the pledge in the everlasting covenant between me, and not just me as dad, but me as also your, my offspring after me, to be God to you, Abraham. And I will forever be a God to your offspring after you. This will last forever. This is the nature of my covenant that I make with you. Verse 8, and I will be to you and to your offspring after you. I will give to you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan. You say right there, you say, oh, that's earthly, right? The covenant must have expired somewhere in the land of Canaan. This covenant must be somehow ceased in the Old Testament somewhere. How is it the expectation of the parents in Luke to act on this, where clearly we see it's tied to the land of Canaan, didn't expire somewhere? This blessing to, to Abraham and to his offspring. No, look at the text so carefully. Do you see about Canaan? God adds emphatically how long they will possess the land of Canaan. Do you see it in there in the text? How long will they last in the land of Canaan? How long will it be their possession? For an everlasting possession. Well, nothing on earth lasts forever. So how long will he be our God and how long will we be his possession and how long will we dwell in the land of Canaan? Forever. I will be their God. Verse 9, and God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. And then he gives them the sign of that covenant. Jump up into verse 13. You know the sign of this great covenantal promise to be circumcision. But jump up into verse 13. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. But this is the piece of circumcision key in on as we jump back to Luke. So shall my covenant be in your flesh. 
an everlasting covenant. Now, the covenant that God made with Abraham, as you see in the text, and he made likewise with Abraham's little ones, his offspring, is an everlasting covenant. It didn't expire before Jesus arrived on the scene and the parents are bringing their infants to him to be blessed. This covenant is a spiritual covenant. He will be their God spiritually and they will be his people spiritually. How do we know it's a spiritual blessing that God is giving to Abraham in this covenant? Because the key term in the covenantal passage is how long will it last? It will last forever. If it was merely an earthly blessing that God gave to Israel and God gave to Abraham and God gave to Abraham's offspring, then why do we have such language here as it will last forever and you will be my people and your little ones after you will be mine forever? You see, even the sign of circumcision marks out the children belonging to Abraham as spiritual ownership for the Lord. Back to our text. Hopefully some of that translates. Go back to Luke. I know digging in Genesis is a lot. And if you hadn't read Abraham in a long time, to come to Luke 18 might be a bit to chew on. But you must grasp the question we're asking about this text in order that we might recognize Luke's intent rightly. Where does the impulse for the parents come from to bring their babies to Jesus that he might bless them? I'm trying to urge you to recognize it didn't come because Jesus is particularly unique and savvy as an individual. They're coming because the promises made to them in Abraham. And the promise is clear. He will be a God, not only to this man who is bringing his baby, but to his offspring after him. And this family brings their infant, knowing how long were we to rest in those covenantal promises? Forever? Parents are bringing their children to Jesus, if you turn back now to Luke 18, squarely because of God's promises to Abraham that he would be a God to them, the parents, and to their offspring after them. These parents believed that their children, this baby, this infant, belonged to God. And they wanted Jesus to bless the baby as such. Now, Lest we think, okay, so what, what Pastor Adam did was he was in Luke 15, or Luke 18, and he's arguing from Luke 18 about the inclusion of the infants and where the impulse is coming from. And I'm trying to track how he's getting there about what's going on here with the infants in the picture by asking the question, where did the impulse come from? He went back to, to Genesis 17 with the Abrahamic promise and found right in there the impulse of why these parents here in Luke are all of a sudden bringing their infants to Jesus. We're saying, why? Because of Genesis 17. That's why. 
unless you think, now, well, we went from Luke 18 to Genesis 17. What about all the Bible in between? Lest maybe we lost something in there somewhere. Let me just give you a small little picture of a couple more biblical texts, wherein not only from Genesis 17 to Luke 18 where the parents had the impulse, but the thought theologically would have been reinforced. In other words, do you think the parents are on the right track? Or are they presuming something that ended somewhere there, and all of a sudden now the parents are trying to ramp it back up again? Or maybe they're just doing something totally separate from Abraham. How do we know that from Genesis 17 to Luke 18, the parents are being biblically reinforced? That indeed, this isn't impulsive. It's covenantal. God wants to bless my infants. They belong to him. He gave them to me, and I want to give them to him because they are his. And it isn't impulsive for me. It's biblically right for me to bring my infants to Jesus. How so? Let me just give you a couple more texts. If you want to look at them later, you can kind of read the whole context. I am cherry-picking for the purposes of time. I would love to sit here and work on all of these texts together with you. But let me just at least read them. Jeremiah 32, 38, and 39. So we would move from Genesis 17, and we'd say, here's the Abrahamic covenant. And we would hear it being rehearsed in what we call the new covenant, Jeremiah 32, 38 through 39. Just listen to the text. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Where have you heard that? You're all like, I'm not sure. We've been all over the place this morning. I can't even quite remember. No, yes, you do. I just read it for you in Genesis 17. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. And the parents say, yeah, that makes sense. Yes, that makes sense. He's going to work in our lives. He's going to continue to regenerate. He's going to continue to teach. He's going to continue to nourish. And then he says this, for their own good, yes, for your good, I will nourish you, I will teach you, I will instruct you, and for the good of their children after them. I want your families. I gave them to you that I might have godly offspring in them. No, this is just a random happenstance. No, I gave it that I might possess it. For to such belongs the kingdom. I have always promised it. Moving from Jeremiah, consider Isaiah 59, 21. Listen to this text as well. Again, the parents are not acting impulsively. They're acting biblically. Isaiah 59, 21. As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them, with my people, with the church. My spirit who is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your descendants nor from the mouth of your descendants, descendants, says the Lord. From this time, for how long? Forevermore. God is covenantally faithful. He didn't just make the covenant with Abraham. He made the covenant with Abraham and Abraham with your offspring after you. For how long? Forever. What should I do with my little one? Bring it to me. 
last text to just consider where the parents, again, where is this coming from? Is Psalm 103. I, I pull 103 here, and, and there's a spattering of verses I just want to cherry pick right now. But, but I pick Psalm 103, particularly interest to us is Mary cites it in Luke 1. She sees it happening too. Psalm 103, but the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. Isn't that what he told Abraham? Isn't that what they rehearsed in the new covenant? Isn't that what we're hearing in the coming of the Son of God? The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness unto the children's children. You see, the parents are bringing their children to Jesus because God has promised since Abraham to be their God and that they belong to him. In this sense of covenantal blessing, if you are a parent this morning, particularly as we consider just recently we had a baby shower for Allison on Friday night, um, and thinking of the Hales uh, child coming, of which the name is still on the fence, I think, somewhere. Um, and with the Chittick's um, baby most recently, those perhaps have the most fresh impulses of these covenantal instincts. Um, when the Hales have their child, they will be bursting with these covenantal instincts. They're implanted in the hearts of parents. And it's not just chemicals. For those of us of the household of the faith, it is biblical impulse. Each parent in love with the Lord. When you hold your little one, you sense God's favor, not only upon your own name, but on the name of your little one as well. There is no parent, and I cast a wide net by a universal comment such as that, but I think I'd be prepared to defend it. No matter the theological language, there is no parent who believes that God sees their little one, which he gave unto them in his mercy, as one who is despised and rejected. There is no parent who has that impulse. They recognize the gift that has been given them in the hand and guidance of God. And they desire their child to experience his blessings. And here we have, in this text, these parents acting in accord with those biblical impulses reinforced from a spattering of the biblical text. That these impulses are not simply chemical or simply a conjured up good idea from mom and dad. They are godly and reinforced from the text of scripture. His covenant is to these parents and their offspring after them. But further, we must ask, um, what is the meaning of the blessing? And my time is almost all the way complete. I have to finish the text, so I'm going to lock the back door so that nobody can run out. I don't want to stop short. We have to see this text. What is the meaning of the blessing? 
verse 15. Now, they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. We know why. We know for what. They wanted the child to be blessed and to grow and to follow Christ as mom and dad were. And, and when the disciples saw it, they got mad. They, re, they, they rebuked them. Get these kids out of here. Jesus called to them saying, let the children come. Do not hinder them. Now, again, why the disciples are screening the kids out, we don't know. Maybe they just, again, they just didn't prioritize it. Think about it. He was indignant with them, not the parents, the disciples. Why? Because, again, consistently across the Gospels, the disciples have been missing the big picture. Just missing the big picture. They're thinking logistics, people, healing, activity, ministry, not crying, babies. Jesus is saying, you don't see what's happening. These parents do. Their hope is in me, as has been promised since Abraham. No, no, we're doing real-time ministry here. You're missing it. Let those kids come to me, and I'm going to bless them, because I'm a God to their parents and a God to their offspring as well. Consistently, they miss it. But notice the blessing, very particular. It's not in general terms. It's very particular. The blessing that Jesus places upon the children is this, for to such, not like who act like them. We're not in verse 17 yet. We're dealing with babies, for to such, these little ones, this little baby, this little Sloan, in the context of Chittix, we recently had this birth, this little one, this little one, for to such, this, belongs the kingdom of God to it. This, not everyone who acts like it yet. No, no, that's a second statement. Don't skip it. To this one belongs the kingdom. Affirmation of the presence of the infants in the kingdom of God. To this one, let this one come to me. I am blessing it. These parents are right. You should have known it since Abraham, Jeremiah, Isaiah, the Psalms. Read the old covenant. To this one belongs the kingdom of God. You see, the kingdom belongs to this little child, to this infant, just as in the days of Abraham. This little infant is a rightful citizen of God's authority in Christ. Jesus is claiming that this infant belongs to him. And this infant belongs to him in the church. That is, in the kingdom of God. I have to ask this question yet. Why? What is the mark that unites this child to the kingdom? Is it because it's a child? Is it this infant to such belongs? That is, to such belongs as in to such belongs every infant, everywhere, born at any point in time. Is it just by virtue of being an infant that the infant belongs to the kingdom? You're all looking at me. I don't know what you're going to say this time. The answer is no. It's not every infant indiscriminately, all times, everywhere, or to such. Every child born in, in West Penn Hospital belongs to the kingdom of God until otherwise noted. We wouldn't confess that, would we? No, no. we'd say there's some sort of determining factor here about to such, give me that one. 
the parent who's coming. Give me that one. For to such as this one belongs the kingdom. And you better not prevent them from coming in, disciples. You're missing the big picture. Out with you, in with them. So what's the determining factor about to such a one? It's the same as the covenant made with Abraham. That child was born in the house of believing parents. Again, it is they since Abraham who belong to believing households as promised in the covenant made with Abraham, who belong to the kingdom of God. This is consistent with Luke's gospel, that they who come to Christ are coming as those believing and acting in faith. Now, they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. Where did that come from? And the disciples saw it and they rebuked them. But Jesus called to him, saying, let the children come to me. And do not hinder them, for to such, of what type? Of this type, of a mom and dad bringing their infant to him. They belong to the kingdom of God. In other words, how dare you restrict infants from the kingdom promises. From the promise established in Abraham and promised to exist forevermore. The children of believing parents have always belonged to the kingdom. Now, a final word and conclusion to this text of why the parents are bringing their children to Jesus to be blessed because indeed they're biblically acting correctly. The children belong to him. And as he says, for to such belongs indeed the kingdom of God. This unites finally the final piece of the text is the theme of humility, as verse 17. Everyone's looking on, right? And there's these parents bringing their infants, and Jesus is blessing them, and the blessing that they're seeking is the blessing that he's bestowing, and that is that these kids belong to the kingdom of God. Not every kid indiscriminately, this kid, for to such as this one from this mom and dad. The believing household, just like Abraham. And everyone's like, what's going on? And he says this to the rest of you in verse 17. Truly I say to you, everybody here, whoever, that is everybody included, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child shall not enter it. You see, it's a parallel statement in many ways. Here you have an infant, and he says, everyone needs to receive the kingdom like this. But it's not the same comment. That's not why the infants are coming, so that he can give an analogy to the adults. They're two separate aspects of the text. For to such belongs the kingdom, period. That's the case. Mom and dad, you're right. Disciples, you should know it. For the rest of you, every one of you who exalts yourselves, every one of you who exalts himself, unlike this infant, who can lay no claim. The blessing comes both ways. To adult and child alike, I bestow it. 
So whoever sees me bestowing the blessing on this one, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. You can't claim anything. I'm bestowing the blessing on you, and I do it to you as well. For remember this, whoever's not like this, but exalts himself, will be humbled. Nothing in your hands can you bring. Oh, I think I've seen a picture of that before. Yeah, I just showed you one when I grabbed that baby and it couldn't bring anything in its hands. You need to be like that. Not lay claim to your own virtues like the Pharisee who stood proudly and said, hey, thanks a lot, and I'm really good too. No, whoever does that isn't like an infant who comes and can't lay claim. Whoever is proud will be humbled. Whoever is humbled will be exalted. That's the greater perspective of humility in the text. But we mustn't lose the picture that is concrete and evident. These children, infants, for to such unto a godly mom and dad belongs the kingdom of God. Let us pray. Father, I pray that you will help us and aid us in thinking on the biblical text. That each of us, as we regard our infants, our little ones, we would recognize your covenantal kindness. 